0: If you've lived in San Diego any part of the last four decades, when I say the two words Uncle Teddy, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Six-five Padres, two on, nobody on, bottom of the ninth, looking for number 400, the 2-2, fastball, strike three call,
1: and he got it! Joe West says strike three call. the Gucci stands there staring, and all the Padres are coming out of the bullpen and the dugout to congratulate one of the most respected Padres and admired Padres literally in franchise history. Trevor Hoffman has his seventh save of the year. Trevor Hoffman has his 400th career save. And like a walk-off base hit, they're bouncing on the mound and chanting
0: all around Trevor. Ted Leitner broadcast San Diego Padre baseball games for 41 years. In addition to calling Padre games on the radio, he also did sports on TV for a local TV station. And that's on an exciting night at the Padre Spring Training Camp
1: in Yuma, Arizona. To the players, Yuma is strictly a four-letter word. Those I spoke with who have been with other teams in other training sites in both Florida and Arizona consider Yuma, Arizona, no offense, the absolute pits.
0: I had a broadcast journalism professor in college who worked with Ted Leitner at that TV station, and he said, look, Mike, if your dream one day is to do sports on TV, then you need to watch Ted Leitner because there's nobody who does it better. And oh, by the way, he said, pay close attention. Because he's the only sports anchor I've ever seen who does the sports cast every night without a teleprompter and without any notes. All off the top of his head. Morland can't run, can't throw, can't field, and he's gotta hit home runs. And he couldn't do that. He couldn't get to the warning track. Man, I miss those sports cast. Looking forward to traveling back in time with Ted Leitner on this episode of the Lost Ballparks Podcast.
1: This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross. From the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And more I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The Bleacher area on center field almost filled, and the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight double at Tiger Stadium. beatings baseball fans. This is Mel Allen, greeting you from
0: Yankee Stadium in New
1: York City. The F&M M&M Schaefer Brewing Company, very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason, bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the
0: start of things, so full of birth. A comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead, wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave or two throughout the evening. Ted Leitner, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Hey, so we'll start with this, a question that uh, I ask most folks right out of the gate. When and where did you attend your first Major League Baseball game?
1: Yankee Stadium, the original Yankee Stadium in New York in, uh, gosh, I couldn't even tell you the year. It was probably late 50s coming on. I thought to myself, Mike's going to ask me the first game i broadcast with the padres and i have no idea (laughs) i cannot remember where the first one was in 1980 when i first started i can remember 1981 because that was uh, jerry coleman had been the manager in 1980 and then came back to the broadcast booth and he was the reason i got in there because he had gone on the field as the manager and left the booth and so I remember we started in Pittsburgh at the old, now gone, Three River Stadium, Jerry and I, that first game. Three River Stadium, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ted Leitner, I know he's all set to go. As Jerry said, when a pitcher isn't in the groove, to get to him, get to him early, get the beginning and end things. The Padres were down twice in that doubleheader yesterday, as the Pirates scored at least one in the first inning in both games. Of course, the first one was the three-run shot by Parker. But I can't remember mine alone with Dave Campbell uh, back then in in 1980.
0: Going back just for a second to to Yankee Stadium, what were your first impressions? How old would you have been? Like just a young guy, less than 10. Oh, sure.
1: And I was astounded by it. Uh, You know, Bob Costas always talks about he went with his dad to Yankee Stadium and he he walked in and it was so big. The grass was so green. It was so huge. And it was absolutely, he'd never seen anything like it. And even among other ballparks back then, it was bigger than, than a lot of them, most of them, you know, in, in Cincinnati, St. Louis, and those old places, Crosley Field and so forth, that was so much bigger. They would open up the center field wall, and that was an exit. So people not only had the the normal exits on the concourse, but you could walk across the field then. Obviously a practice that is totally gone with the old ballparks. Yeah,
0: and it's too bad because if you talk to folks who went to old Yankee Stadium back in the fifties and sixties who had that experience. Uh, exiting through the center field past the historic monuments, it's a moment in time they'll never forget. By the time you got to the San Diego Padres in 1980, I think, San Diego Stadium, which of course was later named Jack Murphy Stadium. Our national anthem from San Diego Stadium, a good shirt sleeve crowd here to watch this ball game today.
1: Here in San Diego, it's always cool in the evening, so it's only in the daytime that fans can watch baseball in their shirt sleeves.
0: What were your impressions of the Murph? You know, it's it's interesting because...
1: (laughs) Coming from New York, you're, you're a food snob, and you're a pizza snob, and a hot dog snob, because all the great foods like that that I enjoyed so much, New York, in my uh, you know early travels, was much better than all the other places. And so Yankee Stadium, when you start there, you kind of get the feeling that everything else is downhill <laughs> after right. that, which is typical New York snobbery. And uh, I, I remember when I was in Oklahoma, uh, my uh, parents came out to visit me when I was in grad school in Oklahoma. And my mom was going to cook something for dinner, and she needed flour. And she asked me, do they have flour here? (laughs) That's a New Yorker, you know, who had never been out of New York except to go to New Jersey for the summer at the Jersey Shore, and literally never any other place. And she wondered out here on the plains, you know, Oklahoma, do they have flour here? And, And that's the way I was with ballpark. So I just kind of went into San Diego Stadium and thought, okay, I mean, it really wasn't anything to talk about. A
0: lot of the same so called cookie cutters were built around the same time, late sixties, early seventies. They made them all the same. There was right. never, you know, any,
1: any any great ooh, what a great nuance there. What a great glad they did this and glad they, you know, had a had a Western Metals building and they built around it kind of thing with Petco Park. And so you could go in as Larry Lucino always said when he was our CEO, that you can blindfold somebody and walk into these ballparks in Philadelphia and San Diego and Pittsburgh and St. Louis. And they're all these cylindrical, multi purpose parks for football, basketball, concerts, tractor poles, whatever. And uh, you wouldn't know where you were if they suddenly took the blindfold off. You have to get acclimated because they all look the same. And I really thought that about uh, San Diego Stadium the first time I went in there in 1978 as a spectator because I was doing Channel 8 sports and hadn't joined the Padres for two years. So I went. Uh, basically the first time in the press box at San Diego Stadium and thought it is what it is. And uh, it's the event anyway, not the the stadium. But uh, that has changed without question in terms of especially baseball.
0: I did love the fact that back in 78 through, I forget, up to 97, that the outfield was not fully enclosed. They didn't do that uh, until much later for football. So you did, I think, from the broadcast booth, have a nice little view of Mission Valley.
1: Very true. And other stadiums, of course, did the very same thing in Anaheim. When, when the, uh, the Angels were there and the Rams were there, they, you know, kept building on, expanding, expanding, expanding for the football. And that kind of hurt the aesthetics of, of what was a baseball park, obviously, for the Angels at that time. And the same thing in Oakland, which was open, if you believe it or not, back in the baseball days and the Raider days. And Al Davis wanted to more, 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 and expand, expand, expand. And they built what they called, remember, Mount Davis? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> that giant enclosure there where it was totally enclosed. And whatever came up to sixty-five thousand or whatever it was, and it was a lot of those parks, including San Diego, was nicer then before they got up to sixty thousand and got the Super Bowl. I think the Super Bowl was a big part of that expansion and and getting to be Super Bowl uh, ready to be able to bid for it and get it. And that certainly happened in San Diego. So the aesthetics were put aside for, as usual. This will be shocking money,
0: right? <laughs> Yeah, I just finished your book, Ted Talks, Uncle Teddy's Fond Memories, Crazy Stories and Heartfelt Reflections, written with John Freeman. And there's so many great stories in this book. I'd love for you to just share a couple, starting with when McDonald's founder Ray Kroc was about to buy the Padres in 74 and told it, he shared with his wife, what Joan, what he was about to do. I love her, resp- her response. You're buying the
1: Padres. And she had told me later, I thought it was a religious order of, of some sort. <laughs> The the, the San Diego Padres, you know, with their their, with their robes on and their little retreat somewhere, and that's what she said. I said, Joan, if I was you, I would not tell that story too often. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved it when, in fact, I don't know remember what I said, but when the Rays representative, you know, that that they had taken pictures of the Padres in Washington uniforms during that that year, anticipating the move to Washington, and I don't think most Padre fans realize how close. It was to not having a team in a market this small, as you've seen with the Chargers, you lose that baseball team back then. And there isn't going to be another one that comes in as they did, you know, with other teams that left and replace them.
0: They actually had photos taken in yes. Washington uniforms.
1: Right. They had them taken. Most people don't know that. But wow. they took the pictures, keep the Padre name. I don't think that was discussed, but it was, uh, you know, Washington, comma National League. That, that kind of thing, yeah. and getting ready from a merchandising standpoint to be able to get the ground running. People don't understand that Ray really, really saved baseball. And when his representative called to try to buy the club and stop the sale, they they asked uh, how many people in Mister Croc's group, and the representative said Mister Croc is the group. <laughs> And how will he be, from a financial standpoint, you know, for the, to satisfy the other owners when they would eventually have to have a meeting, how is he going to finance the, the purchase? And they said, Mr. Crock will write you a check. <laughs> <laughs> Times have changed, obviously, from these $2 billion deals. It was, it was $12 million back then. And he could, in fact, after going, when he went uh, public with McDonald's in the IPO, he made $200 million that day. Wow. And uh, he certainly could afford to buy the San Diego Padres. Thank God. So, tell me
0: about uh, then Padre John Cruck at a spring training game in Yuma sometime <laughs> sometime in the eighties.
1: <laughs> I'll tell you two, Johnnies, two Cruckies, as we call him. Uh, he's standing in Yuma in the on deck circle there for batting practice, and he's got a cigarette in his mouth. He's smoking a cigarette on deck. Not, on deck. I'm not sure anyone's ever seen anything like that in the history of baseball, but that's that's Crucky. And, and a woman yells out at him, who's, you know, the stands are fairly empty. It's pre, it's batting practice before the exhibition game. John, John, put out that cigarette. You're, you're an athlete. And John looks around, just, just cr- cranes his neck over and says, lady, I ain't no athlete. I'm a ball player. <laughs> which, which is absolutely true. When you think about it and the skills that are in baseball that are so difficult that Michael Jordan showed, you know, as one of the great athletes of all time that he could not do better than a 200 average and a couple of home runs and a very low on base percentage and OPS and all that stuff, yeah. that it's true. You can be a great athlete does not mean you can play baseball. You can hit, then you can play baseball. And, and John was being John in his own little West Virginia country way, but he was right. He was right about that. My favorite with John was then on his first road trip in his rookie year, the team bus is going out on uh, out of the hotel, the Michigan Avenue. And they're going out along Lakeshore Drive to get to Wrigley Field. And John turns to uh, Tim Flannery, his, our second baseman, and says, uh, to, looking at Lake Michigan, what ocean is that? And, and Flann <laughs> says, what ocean do you think it is? Uh, <laughs> and Crocker and says, the Mediterranean? <laughs> Country boy? Up to the big city. The same thing happened. What the heck was his name? Jeffrey Stone had played for the Phillies. And a couple of other teams, and I think his rookie year with Philadelphia, this was a kid from Arkansas. It was a really small town. It was, uh, I believe, after the game, they were going home in the team bus, and Stone looked out the window and asked this guy sitting next to him, is that the same moon? We have back in
0: Arkansas. Whoa. Oh my gosh. So Hall of Famer Dick Williams was the Padres manager in 84 and was definitely like sandpaper or smoothing out the edges of that team. I love Tim Flannery's story. Flannery says that during that season, Dick Williams had a one-on-one meeting with him and said, you are the worst player from any time that I've ever managed. And even even as we speak, I'm looking for your replacement. So go out there tonight and don't make a mistake. And I, I, I love, I think you mentioned this in your book, what Flannery said about what he wanted to do when he retired.
1: His, one of his goals, he said, when I retire, I want to buy a, a, a new car and have it fitted with a glass bottom, make it a, the first ever glass bottom car so I can see the look on Dick's face when I run him over. <laughs> uh... <laughs> one of the great lines of all time. And from a baseball, purely you know, not a ballpark standpoint, just a baseball standpoint. This is a guy who was so tough. He also was a very hard drinker, so sometimes you'd catch him at a time when he was kind of a mean drunk, and I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, because I had a good relationship with Dick. It was fascinating that I was on television and and kicking some butt. You can't blame the Padres, and the idea with Chris Brown, I mean, Chris Brown is Chris Brown. I've been doing this 20 years, covering amateur and professional athletics of all different sports. I have never seen an athlete in any sport with less desire and zest to play than Chris Brown. And and Dick looked at me as kind of a, a kindred soul, I guess, because he told others, as he told some sports writers, that it was Peter Gammons, who was you know with the Boston Globe before his ESPN days, one of the great writers of all time, and uh, and one of the great baseball lovers of all time. That I really appreciate about Peter. And and Peter came up to me and said, you know, after a, a scrum there, as it were, in the dugout with Dick and the cameras and the writers, and as we were walking away, Peter says, you know, he really likes you. And I said, gee, that's an that's an upset. no peter says i was talking to him and uh, and he he thinks you're like him you know that you don't care what people think you just say it the uh the chargers are going to seattle why seems like an incredible waste of jet fuel it really does and he said that he appreciates that because he thinks you're like that no filter and you won't bs and you're going to tell it the way it is as as dick does to the media and clearly as you pointed out he does the players but after all that, Tony, Gwynn, Flattery, and all that, at the end of, of the end of their reign with Dick, would say, you know what, tough as he was, much as I hated him at times, he was a hell of a manager who taught us baseball and taught us how to win. He literally, the old cliche about you have to learn how to win, and then you go and do it, which they did in 1984 in winning the National League Championship. Off the hands, Nettles will go the short way, and then... Going to the World Series. Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, scene of game one of the 1984 World Series. Temperature in the 70s, a beautiful night for a big
0: ball game. The Tigers would end up winning that series, but the Padres were now on the map, largely in part, to Dick Williams.
1: He was kind of those, there was a love-hate, Bob Knight kind of a thing and a love-hate relationship that they might have hated Bobby at Indiana at times. I was that same way in saying, you know, that guy, hey, that guy doesn't have range at shortstop. That's a 42 hopper for a base hit, but I got to be honest with you, that's not a base hit. With a shortstop with range, that ball should have been stopped or at least knocked down, that kind of thing. Or that guy should have gotten to that ball to left field. That'd be a bad jump. And I would always point out stuff like that. It did not make me popular with the players at all. Dick Williams' methods may have been difficult to put up with, but they really became better ballplayers.
0: What did you think of that ballpark? Tiger Stadium, it opened in 1912. And I think at the point of the '84 series was the oldest ballpark to host a World Series game. That interesting because I, that that affected me. That, that kind of thing. I think
1: as a New York snob, as we talked about, maybe a sports sports snob as well as a pizza snob and a delicatessen snob. That <laughs> it, it, that's it, San Diego was San Diego. I, I don't know that I'd ever seen a game in San Diego back on, in, in, on television in New York. I had seen Balboa Stadium. Speaking of stadiums that are no longer around, where they played some baseball, mostly football. And I had seen the, the old American Football League. The 1965 American Football League championship game is on the air. Hello, everybody from San Diego, California, Balboa Stadium. The sunshine stuck in my mind as a kid. <laughs> it did, right. Because you're, you're in this little apartment in New York and the icicles are hanging down on the second story window. And you're young and you're asking your mom and you're seeing all these people in their sunglasses and short sleeve shirts, you know, in, in a January football game. <laughs> Mom, where is that? Like, it's like surely like it's another planet. That's California, which was nothing but you know something in a textbook to me. And I was amazed that they're playing in December. And it's it's looks like it's in Miami Beach. Right. It was absolutely wonderful. So I was not to answer your question. I wasn't a, a San Diego Stadium devotee when I first got in there, and it was something I'd seen before. And I wasn't impressed. But Tiger Stadium, being a Yankee fan back in New York, I saw many games on television. Of course, never saw a game in person except in Yankee Stadium, never. And I uh, thought Tiger Stadium, boy, this is really cool. And it was. It was not a good ballpark to uh, b- broadcast a game because you're looking basically you're looking down, just like in Anaheim with all the expansions when when I did uh, the first did baseball games and football games in Anaheim. It was a very difficult angle looking down on the tops of helmets, you know, batting helmets and football helmets. And Tiger Stadium was that way. But it was Tiger Stadium. And to me, you know, Dick McAuliffe and Bill Freehand and all those guys, uh, the great, uh, the great uh, sluggers and Mickey Lulich. Al I did those yeah. guys on television. I was really impressed with Tiger Stadium.
0: In Cincinnati, there was a huge barge on the Ohio River just beyond Riverfront Stadium where the Reds played. And they would shoot off fireworks anytime the Reds hit a home run. <laughs> so you gotta listen, you got to tell the story. Pitching for the Cubs one day was former Padres TV broadcaster Rick Sutcliffe.
1: A true story that was told me by by not by Sut, but by by Mark Grace, who was his first baseman, of course, with the Cubs, and a really funny guy and a terrific. I tell you what, he was just terrific as a hitter and as as a Gold glove first baseman. Mark was a great player, not a good player. I don't think he was perceived as a great player, but he was. Sutcliffe was one of those guys like Goose Gossage. Get off. What are you doing here on my mound? You know, right. when, when people come out to visit, get out of here. And <laughs> he given up back to back to back home runs. And, and the pitching coach Billy Connor came out and he was mad as can be because they had the, the home run, shot off the fireworks out there in the barge. Another one home run, shot off the fireworks. Now here comes Connor, trudging out there, knowing he's not going to be welcome too much on Sut's mound. And he gets out there and Sut says, What? And Connor said, no, 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 calm down, calm down. I'm just giving a little, I just want to stall a little bit and give that guy on the barge out there a chance to reload. <laughs> Gracie, Gracie tells me this, that he's laughing so hard on the mound. And this is the point in the ball game where, you know, they're, they're getting their, you know, watch lit up. Right. <laughs> an old baseball term. And he's put he puts his glove on his face. This is how he told me. I'm laughing so hard. Mucus, he called it in. Okay, you said, snot. It's running out of my nose. I'm laughing so hard. I've never laughed harder at one of the great lines of all time. And you know, baseball, as Joe Garagioli used to say, is a funny game. That was the name of one of Joe's books, in fact. And it really, really is. And that's as good a line as you'll ever hear.
0: When I read that in your book, I was crying. I was laughing so hard. I mean, that's so great. Larry Lucchino, longtime Padres executive, who we mentioned earlier, and really the man more than just about any other guy who was responsible for Petco Park being completed. One night, Larry had to get together at his house, and you got to hear two of the all-time greatest hitters in baseball history spend the night talking about the art of hitting. And I just can't imagine. It's true.
1: And and, and me, I'm not a big party guy. And fortunately, Larry said, hey, we're going to have some people over at the house in La Jolla. And I went for the house (laughs) because I was told by other people that it's right on the ocean on the Pacific and it's a beautiful house and it is, and it's still there and he still owns it and and there's a wonderful view. And so this was in the summer daylight saving time after a day game at at the the ballpark. So it was still light and I wanted to go out there and see the house. (laughs) So that's why you went to begin with. Yeah. And that's why I went. I went to see the house and good food and so forth. Big time, rich guy having a party. And I really adore Larry like so much that I wanted to go and not say no to him. So I'm so glad that I went because I go in there and when I get there, uh, driving after the ball game myself, get in there and I go out back and, and on the patio. We're all out there, of course, with the ocean view, and I see two guys sitting there on, on two different chairs around a table, and it's Tony Gwynn and Ted Williams. Oh my god! And I think, okay, I had been to banquets. And sat with Ted Williams, with Jerry Coleman, my broadcast partner, 35 years, who, of course, played for the Yankees and had a big time rivalry went back with the Red Sox against Ted Williams. And they constantly sat together and, and Ted would, would put him down. They put each other down. It was, it was I'm sitting here thinking I'm between Ted Williams and Jerry Coleman. And I'm hearing all this. It's, I'm so lucky. How in the world does some schnook kid from a little apartment in New York, lower uh, middle class family get to be with all these guys. Now I'm at Larry Lucchino's house, the guy who invented the retro ballpark in Baltimore before he did it at Peco Park, like you said. And I'm sitting there now listening to Ted Williams and Tony Gwynn talk hitting. And Ted saying, Tony, you got to hit more home runs. They pitch you inside and you inside out. it. I know that you knock it out there between shortstop and third in the so-called 5.5 hole, but you got to hit the ball harder. You got to drive in more runs. To Ted, if I do that, I'm going to lose a bunch of points off my batting average. More importantly, I'm going to lose a bunch of points on my on-base percentage. I don't give a... And you can use you imagine the language that Ted Williams used at <laughs> right. the time, you know, because other people wanted to be, from the movies, they wanted to be John Wayne. You know, no, no, John Wayne wanted to be Ted Williams. Ted Williams was a patriotic, glorified character, just like Jerry Coleman, and serving in in two wars, that sort of a thing. So I just was mesmerized by Ted, amazed to be with him. And now I'm hearing this batting clinic between these two, and Ted's dismissing what Tony says. And you got to do this, and Ted convinced him, and he did that the next year. That I couldn't tell you the exact year right now off the top of my head.
0: It was 1997.
1: Do you but remember? that's the yeah. year. That's the year Tony hit 17 home runs, by far his most, because he was starting to turn on the inside fastball. And of course, he hit that one against David Wells in Game One of the '98 World Series at the now defunct Yankee original Yankee Stadium, off the facade of the upper deck. In game one, set to Tony, fastball high, deep right field, throw the right field foul ball, that's fair, it's gone. And it is going and gone. Home run, Anthony Keith Quinn, 4-2, Padres. And Tony hits the home run, Greg Ball hits the home run of David, and uh, the Yankees are in trouble. And then, unfortunately, Kevin Brown had the flu, was sick as a dog, should never have started that day, but had a nice lead. They took him out. And everybody knows the rest of Tino Martinez and the bad call by Richie Garcia on a pitch right down the middle for strike three, end of inning with the bases loaded. And it's called a ball. And then Martinez hits the grand slam. Martinez down the right field line. Grand slam. All of these threads in, in baseball and the ballparks and the people is just amazing.
0: By the way, you had a very close relationship with Tony Gwynn. For someone like me who spent the last two decades plus in San Diego, I know what he meant to this community and to you. But for those across the country, can you just talk for a second about his impact on not just the ball club, but also the community?
1: Tony once said that as he signed autographs and signed autographs and signed autographs, a writer or somebody asked him, boy, you're going to be signing this and your hand is sore. And he said, if I had gotten everybody in San Diego who wants an autograph, if I can give them one while I'm still here, I'll be very happy. Now, let me ask you, Mike. What player says that?
0: <laughs> yeah, there are many.
1: And the kind of guy where a reporter he didn't know. If you knew him, he would do whatever you wanted. Tony, I need to do so and so. Let's do it. Sit down. Let's do it. And sometimes he would see people he did not know at games, and might have been some writer from a, a little newspaper out wherever, a weekly paper, and he would give it that. Then oh, I can, I can. I gotta, I gotta do this. I gotta do that. And then when he got finished doing this and that. Because in his preparation, which was amazing and complete, he had to do it his way and get it done. Then the guy would think he'd been blown off and he wasn't going to get it. And Tony would see him and say, OK, I'm done now. Let's 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 do this. And the guy would tell us later the story. And Tony would spend 30 minutes with him instead of five to fill his entire tape recorder or notebook and think, wow, this guy's unbelievable. I got great quotes and he was so nice to me. I'll never forget this conversation that is the guy beyond the eight batting titles and five gold gloves. And I go back to San Diego State basketball before he became a Padre in 1978, having done those games and still do them and got to know Tony then. Shy little skinny kid from Long Beach and a terrific, terrific quick basketball player that still has the record for most assists. Lifetime. Gwynn was drafted by the San Diego Padres and the NBA Clippers on the same day, but his destiny was on the diamond. And then he believed when he was drafted by the Clippers in the third round, he could, despite his lack of height, he believes and always did and told his son, I could have played in the NBA. I know that. And I believe that too.
0: Yeah, boy, he has missed. I want to take a minute and talk about uh, your broadcast partner, Jerry Coleman. There's a high fly ball, left field, left ball to the wall, out the wall. And there goes another there goes a new all-time run scoring record
1: by Ricky Henderson. Oh,
0: doctor! It's hard to even know where to begin with, with Jair, who is the only major league ball player to leave the sport twice to fly combat missions for his country. Every time he was asked about, what is your greatest achievement in life? It was never about playing for the world champion Yankees alongside Mickey Mantle or whoever. It, his answer was always serving his country.
1: It really was. I always tell people, I don't know the name of the surgery that they do sometimes at birth, but it's removing of the ego, whatever that would be called by doctors. <laughs> Jerry had that surgery immediately on birth, upon birth, and never ever talked about himself and uh, learned that as, as a ball player, that it wasn't about him, it was about the team. It was just the, the most single amazing person that I knew that well for that long. And I was in awe of him. And here I am with a guy who I was watching on Channel 11 in New York City as a kid, play second base uh, with Phil Rizzuto at shortstop. And Rizzuto and him both go on to be longtime broadcasters, obviously, with the Yankees and Padres. And who does that on ball clubs? A fascinating man and, and like you say, a war hero. And you mentioned leaving uh, twice from the Yankees. It wasn't so much. He left them actually three times. People always say he's the only guy to leave twice. But he had signed with the Yankees and had turned down USC on a basketball scholarship. And went with the Yankees after high school in, in the Bay Area, and they put him at the D Club. <laughs> he would have D Clubs then. And you can imagine back then, you know, AAA, ABC, AA, A, A, B, C, D, thousands of clubs when baseball was so different. And they put him in Wellsville, New York, upstate New York, in that year, when he's 17 years old. And he is planning after this, people would give their left eye to be with the New York Yankees and their farm system. But all Jerry's doing is marking time for his 18th birthday so he can join the Marines and fight in World War II and give up this baseball dream, give up the New York Yankees because all he cares about is fighting for his country. Just amazing to me. And I tell him, so you just played. Yeah, I played out the string. I was, you know, playing some baseball, but I didn't care because I knew I was going to leave as soon as I turned 18. And he did. He went back and to uh, California at at the ferry building in San Francisco and was inducted into the Marine Corps. And I'm thinking that's just uh, turned out a basketball scholarship and maybe even avoid the draft and not have to fight. But he's signing up and he's waiting to leave the Yankees for the first time. And then he leaves the other two times to go fight in World War II at the very end. And then in Korea. And when the, we met with this colonel, he told me in New York from the uh, Marines, and uh, he was a Yankee. And Jerry, we'd like you to come back and uh, fight and, and fly in Korea. OK, where do I sign?
0: Yeah, can you tell the story about when he flew into Korea the night that he was in flying in formation?
1: Again, I'm sure they had missions, you know, they're not supposed to go above this the thirty-eighth parallel and, and uh, you know restrictions just like in Vietnam. They restricted what the fighters could do and you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. And so they were in fact going into North Korea. So Jerry's in formation and he's thinking, I know it's I know there's no moon, but this is a ridiculous. I can't see anything. And he opens up the cockpit. This is a Corsair, a single flyer. He's flying all by himself, and he has his wingman on on the left and the right in the formation. And he opens up the cockpit, and, of course, the wind is howling at that 300 miles an hour speed in this turboprop plane that they're flying. And as he looks out to try to see what's on my windshield, his radio headset flies off his head. So now he has no communication. I mean, they're not supposed to communicate except in emergency, and it's blackout condition, so there's no lights on their wings or on the fuselage. And now he has none of that. All blackout, no moon, and this blackness on the windshield. Now he has no communication to talk with his wingmen on either side. So he leans his head out. He's already lost the headset, and it's oil. The plane has sprung a leak, and oil is shooting out under the windshield. Black oil. No wonder he can't see. And he's in big, big trouble. He looks at the oil gauge. It's going down, and he's got to get out of there, and or he's going to be dead. Simple as that. His problem is I can't peel out to left or right, I'm going to hit my wingman. They're not going to see me. I can't warn them, And I have no communication, no radio. So he just continues the mission, drops his bombs on wherever he was at that time, North Korea or communist China, and got back to base on fumes and crashed and inverted upside down, was hanging there by by his uh, strap that strapped him into the seat and took a blow. But he was still conscious, wondering, what the hell am I doing here? Where am I? I'm upside down, and you he can hear the woo, woo, sirens of the uh, ambulances and what have you coming to, to get him. And he lived through it. And it's just you hear these stories, and he would never tell them unless I begged him. <laughs> I always said, hey, Jerry, I'm getting out the dental tools. And he knew what I meant. I'm going to pull teeth. I'm going to pull <laughs> teeth now to make you tell me about these war, war stories, because they don't tell that generation that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation that won World War II in Korea. They don't tell war stories. They don't glorify themselves. Right, they say right. war is hell. and I don't want to talk about it. And uh, that's just the way they are.
0: I miss you and Jair on the broadcast so much. Uh, I appreciate that. My, my favorite part of every broadcast, Padre broadcast, was what'd you do today, Jair? You know, where <laughs> he had his own little adventures uh, before the ball game, And depending on what city you were in, he could, yeah, who knows where was, he might end was, up. It
1: was something that was so amazing. And I stole that from Elaine Boozler. Elaine Boozler was a comedian, one of the first women comedians. Very funny. Yeah. And uh, what's his name? He used to play uh, on Taxi, the crazy guy who played Latka. Andy Kaufman. Ta- Andy Kaufman. And when Andy Kaufman was dating Elaine Boozler, he would go to the club and sit in the back. And later in her set, when it was quiet for a couple of seconds, he would yell out to Elaine, what'd you do today? <laughs> <laughs> their thing. <laughs> that was their thing of her knowing that he was there and asking that question. And I heard that story. Read that story, and I thought, I'm going to ask Jerry what he did today, because he's just, as always, this crazy stuff that happens to him, and he would come up with stories and crazy stuff that happened during the day, and I would get comments the next day from everybody who recognized me from television on, on the street, and, oh, I love when you asked Jerry what he did, and he said this and that. One of my favorites was in Denver. We usually stayed at the Hyatt, and it was filled by some kind of a convention, so we couldn't stay at the Hyatt shortly after the Denver team came in in 93, And so they put us at the embassy suites, much less of a hotel, but that's okay. And then Jerry, when I always would ask him what he did, I took a walk this morning because he had serum cholesterol over 300. Oh, wow. Skinny little guy. He was at his Yankee playing weight his entire life, but he had high cholesterol. So the doctor put him on a walking program. He had to walk. And so he did. He got up early. It was a five o'clock, still like in the Marines, get up and walk every morning at five o'clock. And I said, what'd you do today? I went for a walk this morning. I went all through downtown Denver. But we're not in an area where we normally stay. I know that. I know that. And so I got lost. <laughs> I had no idea where I was, and I'm walking around, and I'm just getting to be, you know, an hour now. I can't find where we were at the hotel. And I go up to a cop, and I say to him, "Hi, I'm I'm here with the New York San Diego Padres. We're playing uh, the uh, the Rockies later. Uh, I can't find my hotel." And they say, "Well, what's the name of it?" And <laughs> being Jerry, and, and saying things many times that were really, really. Different from reality, he said, I, I think it's the NBC suites. <laughs> <laughs> and the cop says, NBC suites. I don't think we've got an NBC, suite we got an embassy, <laughs> embassy suites. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he, 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 he takes me back to the, and I say, on the air, Jerry, did you, did you buy an ice cream cone? You were a lost little boy. Did you buy an ice cream cone and take you all the way back? Yeah, yeah, he, he took me all the way back. And, and th- those kinds of stories oh, literally were every best. single day. And the fans responded to that as much as they did the ball game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One last story. I'll get you out of here on this. Hall of Famer Ricky Henderson had two different stints with the Padres. The first in, I think, 96-97 and the second in 2001. Padres' then third base coach, Tim Flannery, had a unique way of giving him signs.
1: The problem with that, Ricky, who, by the way, was the greatest lead, as you know, the greatest leadoff batter that ever lived. I mean, just an amazing athlete. And, oh, yeah. and those who knew Ricky, as I got to know him a little bit, but he could never remember my name. <laughs> He never remembered anybody's names, and, uh, and and couldn't remember a lot of his teammates' names. He knew Tony Gwynn. He sat next to Tony in the locker room at, at Jack Murphy Stadium, and you could hear Tony's laughter. When it was such a distinctive laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still had that laugh on my iPhone. Tony said, nobody's more unintentionally funny than Ricky Henderson. And, <laughs> and he would make Tony <laughs> laugh, and it was just... You, if you had to pay to go in the locker room to hear those two and, and hear Tony's laugh, it was wonderful. So he couldn't remember names. He couldn't remember the signs. He never knew the signs. So Flan had a foolproof way to give him the sign. He would walk down toward home plate, and Ricky would walk up toward third baseline in the coaching box, and he would grab him by the shoulders and say, Bunt. <laughs> he would grab him by the shoulders and say, Swing away. They would grab him on the shoulders and say, hit run, which they didn't do very often, of course, with Ricky. And my personal favorite with Ricky was uh, the guy with tenure on the ball club, the most senior player, sits in the first seat. As you come on the bus on the left side, he sits there as the most tenured ball player. So Ricky gets on and Steve Finley, Finns is sitting in his seat. And Ricky says, what are you doing here? (laughs) And Finn says, I've got tenure. And Ricky says, I got 16 year.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's so great. That's that's
1: Ricky who, when he played for the Mets, had an apartment in in Manhattan and the empire state building was right across the way. And Ricky said, I could, I could open my, I could open my drapes and see the entire state building. (laughs) The
0: entire uh, thing, Rick. Yeah. the Entire thing. Entire state building. You can fill a book with Ricky Henderson stories. Honestly. Just the best. I will say, folks, look, the next time you're at Petco Park, make a left turn just before you get to the historic Western Metal Supply Building and head into the Padres Hall of Fame. There you will see its newest member, Ted Leitner, a man behind the mic for 41 Padres seasons and a man, by the way, who deserves to receive the Ford C. Frick Award, the Baseball Hall of Fame's highest honor for broadcasters. That recognition, Ted, is long overdue, and I hope that it's coming soon.
1: I saw the list of of this year's uh, finalists, and I checked it. And I double-checked it, and I'm not on it. <laughs> well, I am glad, though, that my former partner, Dave Campbell, who's a great analyst and a play-by-play guy, uh, and had some ESPN time, that David is on it. So if I can't be there, hope David wins it.
0: Well, hopefully next year that'll be rectified. You need to be on the list and then eventually get the award. That that I mean, it's a no-brainer. So I
1: appreciate that very, very much. I do. Ha-
0: i so appreciate the time one of my all-time favorites and loved listening to you on padre games miss you on padre games and uh, yeah it's been a thrill to spend some time with you today Mike, thank you so much so much i gotta say living in san diego for the past almost 24 years i feel spoiled not just because it's a great place to live but because we've had the privilege of having some all-time greats called games for the padres ted leitner and jerry coleman and Don Orsillo and Mark Grant most recently on TV. There's a link, by the way, in the podcast notes to check out Ted's book, Co-Written with John Freeman, who helped make this interview happen. Thank you for that, John. The book is called Ted Talks, Uncle Teddy's Fond Memories, Crazy Stories, and Heartfelt Reflections. And I highly recommend you check that out. One other quick note, the Lost Ballparks limited edition T-shirt is now available for Lost Ballparks Clubhouse members. Clubhouse members are the folks who keep the lights on around here and along with our other Patreons, make it possible for me to bring you this podcast commercial free. If you'd like to find out how to get your T-shirt and receive many other benefits, including hearing all episodes a week early, exclusive video content, and much more, just go to LostBallparks.com. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Briggs Buckingham, Kyle Schmidt, Brian Bingert, John Carter, Ryan Beard, Xavier Guerra, Mandy Zavlakis, and Mike Dunn. Thanks for listening. Join me again next week for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.